You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Well, good morning. It's good to, to be here with you guys. Um, yeah, so I planted and pastored a church called Sojourn Church uh, for about nine years. And Sojourn was a part of helping plant New City Church uh, when you guys started off several years ago. And then our church merged together with Redeeming Grace Church about a year and a half ago. Uh, and so now we're this new church here in Fairfax bringing those two congregations together. And God's been doing some good stuff uh, in Fairfax. But it's good to be here with you guys this morning and looking forward to open up God's word with you. Uh, before we do that, though, let's just pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Should you pray with me? <clears throat> Gracious God, you are God, and you are good. And Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to see and experience your goodness. Help us to see and experience your grace today. And God, we pray by your Spirit that you give us ears to hear. Encourage us today, no matter where we're at, whether things are going well for us right now or whether we're really struggling, we pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning and that you would do so for our good and for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So I grew up in this area, well not here in, in Prince William, but in, in Fairfax County. My family moved to the area when I was about four years old, and so I went K through 12 in Fairfax County public schools, and I graduated a little over 20 years ago from Chantilly High School. And so like most high schools, we had a 20-year reunion. You know, reunions are a pretty common thing to do, to practice. It's a time when we get together, we see old friends you haven't seen it in a long time and to try and get to spend a little more time catching up than what you get on Facebook. Reunions are really about remembering. You spend your time kind of equally divided between sharing updates about your life and saying over and over again, remember when? Remember when? I know for some of you, remembering high school is probably the last thing you'd like to do. It wasn't a good experience for you, but for me, my four years were a pretty fun time. Of course, there were lots of up and downs as there always are for teenagers, Real loss and real heartache and perceived loss and perceived heartache, but generally I enjoyed my four years as a Chantilly Charger. You know, that's the nature of remembering, isn't it? It depends on kind of what we're thinking about when we're remembering, what part of life you're calling to mind. It can be full of joy or it can be marked by grief or by challenge, and a lot of times it's a mixture of both of those things. Well, today we're going to be in Psalm 126. And what we see in this psalm is that remembering is not only normal for God's people, but it's necessary. Life in a, is in, in a broken world is legitimately hard, isn't it? I think it's okay to acknowledge that. And part of the consequences of sin entering into the world, or rebellion against God, is that it brings about challenges and conflict. It brings about toil and tiredness. And all of those things can assault us and rob us of real joy in the midst of our lives. And the reality is all of us can struggle with that lack of joy, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not. And so my hope this morning as we walk through this psalm is that God will help us by the work of his spirit in the everyday moments of our lives to remember who he is and what he's done. And that by doing that, he can restore joy in our lives in the present. So let's jump into Psalm 126, and may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. I'm going to read the whole psalm for us, and then we'll walk through it together. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, 
and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This psalm can be broken down into two sections. and So we're going to use these two sections as our two points this morning. Look back in remembrance, which you see in verses 1 through 3, and then look forward in hope you see in verses 4 through 6. So let's look at the first section here, look back in remembrance. The psalm begins in story-like form. Verse 1 says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Now we're immediately drawn into a time when God did an amazing and restoring work. But this restoring, restoring work wasn't about restoring material wealth, but restoring from loss. That's the basic nature of restoring. Now, we don't know if the author has something specific in mind when he's writing this or he's thinking more generally about the history of God's people and how God has done a restorative and redeeming work among his people and towards his people. But either way, as we flip through the pages of Scripture, we see over and over again how God has done those kinds of things, how he's been consistently good to his people, consistently restorative towards his people continually pursuing them and redeeming them and providing for them and protecting them. We go all the way back to the very beginning. We see that even with Adam and Eve, as they've rebelled against God, God pursues them in the midst of the rebellion and provides for them. We see it in the flood with Noah and his family that he provides for them and protects them and preserves them. With Abraham, as he calls him out of a pagan worship of false gods and calls him to himself, provides eventually a son for him. We see it in Joseph and Moses, the people of Israel in slavery, redeeming them out of that, providing food and nourishment for them, giving Joshua the ability to go into the promised land over and over again, even returning God's people from exile. God is faithful to do these kinds of things. And the amazing reality is, is that God often did this redeeming, this restoring work, not because of his people's faithfulness but in the midst of their unfaithfulness. See, this isn't about remembering past personal accomplishments. It's about remembering God's past faithfulness. And whatever the situation was, whatever the circumstance was, the author's remembering God's restoring work and says it was so significant that it made them feel like they were dreaming. Like, is this real life? Is this really happening? Did God really do this? So what was the result of this restorative work? The author tells us in verse 2. Look at the beginning of verse 2. It says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. The result of this kind of restoration that the author has in mind is laughter and joy. I mean, I think we can imagine that, right? If we've lost something or there's a damaged uh, piece of uh, important thing in our life, maybe it was a, a photograph or a piece of art or it's just something valuable to us, that prized possession for us, if someone returns it to us perfectly in mint condition, we'd be ecstatic about that, overjoyed. They were overwhelmed with God's kindness towards them that they couldn't help but explode in jubilant celebration. And as a result of their celebrations of joy, do you notice what it says here? Their neighbors took notice. Look at the rest of verse 2. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. 
The people around them were able to see the restorative work of God that he'd done in the lives of his people, and they themselves testified to it. But notice, it doesn't say the nations said their God or a God. It says Yahweh or the Lord has done great things. I mean, what an amazing reality that the kindness of the Lord towards his people testifies to the nations about his character, about who he is. And I love verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. The psalmist here and God's people, as they think about this, as they rehearse this psalm, they repeat the testimony of the nations. As if to say, yeah, yeah, the Lord has done great things for us. And because of that, we are glad. To be glad is to be overjoyed. It's to be full of joy. And what we see here is that joy is a consequence of, a result of, the kindness and the restorative and redeeming work of God. See, the author is remembering a time, he's remembering a season where God did great things and his people were full of joy. And it's good for God's people to reflect. It's good for God's people to remember his past restoring work because, once again, they're in need of it. Once again, they need God to show up in this way, which leads to our next section, look forward in hope. Look at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, instead of remembering God's restorative work, the psalmist is pleading for him to do it again. He's pleading for him to do it again. This is an honest prayer. He's crying out to the Lord. God, would you restore us? Would you help us? It's a cry for restoring, the again, not fortunes and material wealth, but just for God's mercy towards his people. We don't know the situation here. We don't know what's going on, but we see the seriousness of it in the second half of verse 4, where he says, like streams in the Negev. See, the Negev or the Negev, depending on what translation you have here, is the dry, arid region in the south of Judah. He's saying, this is how I feel. I feel like a desert. He's pleading for this dryness to turn into flourishing, for this dryness to turn into thriving, like when the rains would come into this region, into this valley, and it would blossom with life. When we're in places of drought and dryness in life, it can suck all joy out of our lives. I mean, do you ever feel that way? Maybe something going on in your life right now, some challenge, some loss, a difficulty you're experiencing. Maybe it's just the wear and tear of the daily things of life, the situations, the tiredness, the difficulty that life can be from time to time. Listen, it doesn't have to be catastrophic to be difficult. It doesn't have to be catastrophic to lead to joylessness in your life. But whatever it is, now or in the future, doesn't mean that you're without hope. Look at verses 5 and 6. This is, this is really important to see this. It says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. What the psalmist is doing here is giving a declaration of hope. He, he longs for redemption. He longs for restoration. But he's hopeful that God will come through. He says, those who sow in tears because of loss, because of difficulty, because maybe of grief over our own sin and sinfulness, they not will, maybe, I hope, reap shouts of joy. They shall reap with shouts of joy. He declares this to be true. 
And he, he who goes out weeping in his sowing, he shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the fruit born out of that suffering, born out of that trial. So they recall a former time of blessing, which they're currently not experiencing, and they express their longing for God to do it again, for that blessing to return. But see, it's in their remembering that allows them to have hope. It's in their remembering that allows them to have hope for blessing to come, for joy to be restored. This isn't wishful thinking. This isn't wishful thinking, but deeply rooted hope for God's restoring work. That just as he redeemed in the past, just as he restored joy in the past, he will do a redeeming and restoring work again, resulting in abundant joy. Now there's something really important for us to see in this, something for us to learn in this. So what we see in this psalm is an expression of the difference between groaning and grumbling. When we find ourselves in less than favorable or desirable situations in life, we can tend towards one of those two things, either grumbling or groaning. Grumbling happens when we look at our situation or our circumstance that's not what we want it to be, and we find ourselves complaining to God or about God about our situation. They can come out about in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's overt. It's usually mixed with some level of anger. Grumbling is an expression of discontentment. Grumbling is an expression of unbelief. Groaning, on the other hand, happens when we look at our situation and instead of complaining about it, we acknowledge its difficulty. We're not acting like it's not hard. We're not acting like it's not difficult. We acknowledge that. Acknowledge what's going on, and then we cry out to God for help. Groaning is longing for the situation to change, but not with anger at God, but striving to trust him in the midst of it. Fighting for contentment and joy even when things are hard. That's what we see happening in Psalm 126. The cry of verse 4 is a collective groaning followed by hope in the restoring work that God will do. So let me ask you this morning, when something is particularly challenging in your life, do you find yourself inclined to grumble or to groan before the Lord and before others? On a Tuesday when things aren't going well, when things are challenging in this community or church, when things aren't going well at work or at home, what do you find yourself gravitating towards? Psalm 126 is instructive. It's helpful for us today because we see a pattern in it that's couched in the fact that this is part of what's called the Psalms of Ascent. These Psalms were not sung just once by God's people. They're part of a collection of Psalms in the book of Psalms that they were sung and recited and rehearsed over and over and over again by God's people as they journeyed to Jerusalem year after year. They're songs for sojourning. They find themselves as people on a journey, this place not being their home. They would come back to these truths and recite them over and over again. Now, yes, this psalm was written in a particular time by a particular person because of a particular situation, but the pattern they portray, that they show us, is consistent with our ongoing experience in life. We also are on a journey. This place also is not our home. Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. See, this psalm is about real life because real life is full of both weeping and laughter. It's full of both grief and joy. So they need to sing it. We need to sing the song on repeat because the experience of their lives and our lives is a consistent fight for joy. 
This means that the psalm of ascent, this song for sojourning, is also relevant because we also need to look back in remembrance and to look forward in hope so that we can have joy in the present, no matter what's going on. So what are we to do with this in our own lives and in our own community? Well, joy really should be characteristic of the Christian life. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Because we're in Christ, because we have this relationship with God, joy should be a part of, a regular part of our life, our experience, but it often isn't. Why? Why do we struggle so much to have joy in the midst of our lives? I think at a basic level, it's because we've forgotten. We have short memories. Our memories of God's kindness, our memories of God's faithfulness are often left by the wayside, or they're just overwhelmed by the present, whatever's going on in our life. See, all of us face struggles, we face difficulties, we face temptations. There will be situations and circumstances and seasons of suffering that we'll all experience in this life. And the fact that this psalm, again, is a part of this collection of songs sung over and over again, communicates that to us. And when restoration is needed, when joy is lacking, you and I will be tempted. We'll be tempted to search for joy in someone or something else. And our culture is built on that idea of offering you cheap jolts of joy. Whether it be entertainment, the accumulation of more things, a different place to live, a different car to drive, a different job to get, the relationships we can have or we hope to have, food and drink, whatever it happens to be, our culture offers us those cheap jolts of joy. And sometimes it's not just out of the difficulty, we just get bored with life. In those mundane moments of life, we seek something to divert us or distract us from whatever is difficult or unexciting. But we have to understand that the joy that those things offer, it never seeps down deep into our hearts and our lives. It never seeps down to the depths of our soul. It never changes you or sustains you. Its effects may be there for a little while, but they're just temporary, leaving you looking for another joy high in something else. See, our world tells you that a goal in your life should be to seek to eliminate difficulty or to remove or alleviate challenges at whatever cost. And it entices you to do so by purchasing joy from its little shop of trinkets. But Psalm 126 doesn't hint at that being the way to restore joy in our life. You know, one of the most remarkable things we learn from this psalm is that laughter and joy doesn't exclude weeping. It doesn't exclude it. This psalm is not a call to fake it till you make it. To just kind of put on a smile hoping that it'll cover over real pain, real hardship, real sorrow. No, instead, we have to understand that those things are not able to drive out the happiness of the redeemed if we remember that. Why? Because we understand that real joy doesn't come about through escape, but through immersing ourselves in God and who he is. The pattern we see in Psalm 126 is that you can have joy. You can fight for joy no matter what's going on in your life by placing your faith in the faithfulness of God. By remembering who he is, coming before him in honest prayer. It's one of the things I love about the Psalms. That you see the honesty that we can have before the Lord. This real emotion there. A real wrestling with God. We don't have to clean up our prayers that come before him or caveat everything. We can just be honest with him and process our emotions with him. See, we need to understand something. What God does is rooted in who God is. 
The author recalls the fact that God has done great things for them. But why? Why has he done great things for them? Because they're worthy of those great things? Because they're the all-star team? Because they've done lots of good stuff and so God's just paying them back? They've earned it? No, because God is great and because God is good. He's done great things for them because he's full of loving kindness and mercy and grace. He's done great things for them because he's a faithful redeemer. But God hasn't just done great things for them. He's done great things for us too. It's been really helpful for me over the past few weeks, really the past few months. I've read this psalm many times. My family's memorized parts of this psalm, like verse 3 before. But something I've realized is that I've struggled a lot in this past year with just a lack of joy. As I started to dig into that a little bit, by God's grace, I've realized that one aspect of my lack of joy is just discontentment. Feeling discontent with things going on in our church. Discontent with things going on in my family or in my life. And here's where I love God's word, his living and active word. That's like a sharper than a two-edged sword that divides and exposes me before the Lord. Is that in the midst of this, God has used this psalm and things like it to challenge me, to convict me, to begin to change me. This psalm has helped me to realize something that I so often forget to remember. I so often forget to celebrate and to reflect on the good things that God has done. I so often forget God's kindness to me. I so often forget God's faithfulness to me. I so often forget who God is. The God I say I follow. The God I say I worship. So we need to do a lot more of that as God's people, remembering and celebrating so that, so that, we might be reminded that God is faithful always to his plans and always to his people. Listen, maybe things aren't going the way you want them to go right now in this church community, in your personal life, with work right now. But even if that's true, we can still have joy because God is God and he is faithful and he is good. When I'm struggling with joy in the midst of grief or trial, crying out for God to do the restoring work that I know only he can do, it's been helpful for me to remember the greatest act of restoration he's done in my life. The fact that he's redeemed me, he's made me a new creation in Christ. If we ever ever doubt God's goodness, if we ever doubt God's faithfulness, we simply need to look to the cross and the resurrection. We were so wicked in our sins, so rebellious in our disposition towards God that Jesus had to die for us. It wasn't a minor inconvenience for us that we disobeyed God, but we rebelled against him. We deserved death, but God sent his only son to redeem us and restore us. Listen to these truths from God's word. From Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6, Paul's helping us to remember this redeeming work of God. It says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And did we do this on our own? No, he says all this is from God. 
All of it's from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. Brothers and sisters, Jesus took on the wrath and punishment that you and I deserved. He willingly went to the cross to rescue me, to restore me, to rescue you, to restore you and give us not small sips of joy, not just little dropper, droppers of joy along the way. He came to give us an abundance of joy, to lavish his grace and love on us, to give us more and more of himself. And if you are in Christ, if you've truly placed your faith in Jesus, this is true for you too. When you think about who God is and what he's done. I've thought about several people in our church when it comes to this. You know, one of the joys of being a pastor is kind of getting a front row seat to God's work in different people's lives. Seeing people cross from death to life, being transformed and renewed in the grace of the gospel. I'm sure that's true for you as well. I'm excited for others of you here this morning because Maybe some of you haven't yet trusted in Christ. But you know what? You're here not by accident, but in God's providence. It's not a mistake that you're here or you're a part of this community or checking out who Jesus is. But what I want you to hear in this is there's an invitation for grace for you too. That God can do this redeeming work in your life because Jesus came, and to, to, came to seek and to save the lost. To rescue you from sin and the wrath that you deserve and to make you a new creation as well. So if you find yourself not yet trusting in Christ, come to him today. Place your faith and your hope in him. Friends, Jesus is the ultimate display of the mercy of God towards us. The ultimate display of the mercy of God towards us that we need to remember and come back to and root ourselves in amidst the winds and waves of this life. Joy should be the characteristic of the Christian life, not because we drum it up on our own, not because we fabricate it on our own, but because of all we've been given in Jesus. I mean, where would you honestly be apart from Christ right now? Have you ever stopped to think about that? If Jesus hadn't invaded your life, where would you be right now? Friends, he has done great things. And when we remember that, we can be glad in him. Now, I, I want to be careful here. Because the reality of verses four through six is not a, a, not a broad brushstroke over the real challenges of life, the real difficulty. They are sowing in tears. They're weeping. Things are hard. Maybe that's where you're at right now. I know just in the amount of people in this room, that has to be the case, at least for some of you. For others of you, maybe it isn't you right now, but it very well may be you in the future. But what I want us to see here is that we were, when we remember who God is and what he's done, we can have hope for what he will do. See, each moment where you need restoring joy, it's a, it's a moment of an invitation for you, an invitation to get more of God, an invitation for the God to be more of him who knows how to wipe away tears, the God who knows how to resurrect life. You know what? Our God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And if he has done a restoring work like this in the past, why would we assume that he'll act any different towards us in the future? Now, this doesn't mean that everything's going to turn out the way that we want, or the way we think it should go. We aren't God. Our ways are not his. But what it means is, is that we can trust him in the midst of our sorrow. We can trust him in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of difficulty and drudgery, in the midst of the maddening and the mundane. We can trust our God who has been faithful and will be faithful to the end. Friends, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy 
Joy comes in the morning. This is the heart and the hope of this psalm. We can have joy now because we know of the great things God has done ultimately in saving us and know and believe that he will restore all things in the future when King Jesus comes again and cracks the sky and makes all things new. So come to him now, friends. Come to Jesus now for restoring joy. There's one other thing I don't want us to miss in this. When we encounter difficulty in this life, we aren't meant to endure and persevere alone. In a very individualistic culture, right, we can kind of think our our difficulty, our trials are just my little thing to deal with on my own. We don't want to burden others with that or we just feel weird sharing those kinds of things with people. But we have to remember that this psalm was sung collectively by God's people as they journeyed together. It was something we did in concert with one another. And we too are on a journey. This is not a solo endeavor that we're meant to live this life in. It's a communal trek to the new city. Where there'll be no more weeping. Because there'll be no more sadness and no more sickness and no more sin. So now we are fellow travelers. We are fellow sojourners. We can help one another along the way. Not to grumble, but to groan with hope. We can do this by reminding one another of who God is, by reminding one another of what God has done and celebrating, like actually really celebrating his amazing grace in our lives. It's one of the reasons it's so important for us to gather together each week as God's people, not just to fill your time with something to do on a Sunday morning, but we can come bringing our laments, come and place them at the feet of Jesus in the company of Jesus's people, helping one another to celebrate, not in spite of our suffering, Not in spite of our challenges, but right in the midst of them. I love the songs that we sang this morning. I think they draw us into that idea. Yet not I, but Christ through me. That song, Abide With Me. It's just good songs to sing with real emotion, real feeling that everything isn't always great. Man, I need to be reminded that God is still faithful in the midst of that. When we come to gather together as God's people, you don't just come for yourself. You come for the people sitting around you. Sometimes they need to hear you singing in faith because they don't have any right now. Or maybe sometimes you're the person who's struggling with faith and you need to hear the people around you lifting their voices in praise. Man, I'm struggling to believe, but I'm glad my brother and my sister aren't. Man, let God's word be read over you and sung over you and come together as God's people. The best time to gather isn't when you're happy and joyful, but when you aren't. So if you feel tempted to not show up on a Sunday morning, and not go to a community group in the week because it's been a hard week. Let that prompt you and push you to come. Even if you just sit in the back, even if you just sit the whole time, just to listen and receive God's grace to you. And we aren't just the church on Sunday, right? We're the church all throughout the week as we scatter. And so we can continue to cry out with one another and for one another and also help each other remember the faithfulness of God the faithfulness of God in the past so that we can have hope and confidence for what he'll do in the future, just like we see in Psalm 126. And let's not forget having joy in the midst of difficulty, genuine joy that's rooted in the character and nature of God. It also does something for those around us, right? It testifies to our neighbors and the nations, enabling them to see and to know who our God is, a God who redeems and a God who restores. What might God do? What might he do in us and through us if we truly journey together, fighting for joy, genuine joy? May we be a people who remember who God is, 
May we be a people who remember what he has done and because of that declare the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Amen. You know, one of the first responses to the preaching of God's word is just to join together in taking communion. It's a a means of grace given to us by Jesus and he gives it to us to reorient our hearts and our minds on who he is and what he's done, the richness of his grace towards us. This Little meal is both a reminder and a spiritual refreshment as we seek to experience the presence of Christ. The bread is a picture of Jesus' body broken for us. The cup is a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us. And so today, as you come forward to eat and drink, I want to invite you to look back in remembrance and to look forward in hope so that you might have joy in the present. No matter what's going on in your life right now, may this be a nourishment to your soul. And listen, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, we just ask you not to come and take communion. We want you to experience grace this morning. And so instead of eating and drinking, just take Christ today. Cry out to him. Ask him to save you, to show him yourself. And I know there's people around you that would love to help you know what it looks like to know him and follow him.